you know, there's just this thing about kids. They just, they want things now the way they want it. And they don't understand why you don't do exactly what they want. When, and if they don't, then they will fall down in the aisle at Target or wherever and blow up and throw a big fit because they want to have their way now. You know what? When we grow up, we don't really, we're not that much different. We have the kind of the same response to God, do we not? When things don't go the way that we think they should go, do we not get mad at God? Do we not get frustrated at God? Do we not doubt God? Do we not understand? Well, God, it's just you did this, you didn't do this, or I just don't, I don't know what I think about God because he didn't. We have all of these different feelings. And so I, I would argue that the, the problem is that our, our view of reality is just a bubble off. It's a bubble off. If you were to put the level on it and you're, you're measured up to our brains, okay, and you look at our perspective on everything, the reality is our perspective might be pretty accurate, but it's just inaccurate enough that it's really off. And when you go out far enough either direction, you really realize that we, we don't have as good of a grasp on things as we think that we do. We have a skewed view of reality, and we're a bubble off. This is what uh, some theologians call the noadic effect of sin, the noadic effect of sin, which has nothing to do with Noah, uh, incidentally, it has to do with noias, which is talking about wisdom and, and knowledge in our brains. Um, a Greek word, noetic effect of sin is that, that your brain has been tainted by sin. And this is interesting because the world we live in, the reality is today, most people in our culture believe that they are the greatest source. And you, you probably, you're in this and I'm, I'm in this too. We come in with a presupposition and that is that I am the source the greatest source of discerning what is right and what is wrong. I, I can see, and you give me the information, and I'll assess whether I think it's accurate or not. And so I will determine what I want to do with my life and what I believe and what's right and what's wrong and what it's just based upon. I, I am the source of sovereign discernment. That's the presupposition that we begin with. That's how we enter the room in any conversation, in any view. And so as you're growing up, you're learning about all these different religions and different things, and you're hearing about Christianity, and we get bits and pieces of things, and we pull it together. And then me at the center of the universe, I look at all the information, and I determine what I think and what my view is going to be based upon the information that I've gotten. And here's the problem with this. It's kind of a, this is kind of a circular deal where it's almost kind of, it's like I'm explaining something to me that to you guys that you're going, you know, yeah, that's true, which is why I don't really have to believe what you're saying because I know what's true, you know. So, so the struggle here is that as you're hearing these things and as you're hearing the truth about Jesus, you need to understand that you don't have an accurate view of reality. You can't figure it out on your own. You can't. I mean, heaven's not going to be full of the smartest people in the room, Okay. Heaven is not going to be, is, is not the fraternal organization of the smart people, okay? These are the people that were really smart and figured it out, and then hell, is the per, that's the group of people that they did not figure it out. We figured it out. They didn't figure it out. That's the two groups. That's not how it goes. It is the grace of God through the power of God's Word, through the power of His Spirit revealing His truth to us that opens our brains and cracks into our jaded view of reality and reveals the truth and that little seed of the truth begins to grow and suddenly we discover where we really stand between us and god the separation there and the desperation there and that our only hope is christ and until we come to that conclusion 
that we really are messed up and cut off from God, then we really don't come to the conclusion that we need a reconciler. And if you haven't come to the awareness of your desperation and your desperate straight, that I your desperate state, then I would argue you probably have never really met the reconciler because you never knew you even needed him. Hence this passage, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And let me just pray before we go into this. Father, I do pray that you would overcome our inability to perceive and understand and comprehend the truth. God, we all in our flesh want to reject your control, sovereign uh, control over your creation. We don't want to submit to you. Uh, We would rather uh, take you and reject you and nail you to a cross and put you in a grave if we had our control. But God, we recognize that you are sovereign and you are supreme and you have created all things are created by you and for you and through you and to you. And so for that reason, God, we ask you to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Praise the Lord. See, just tipping you off. And uh, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, through uh, his death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's the verses we're looking at this morning. So the first thing to, to acknowledge and to, rea- uh, to, to realize is that we were called from alienation, that, that we started off, our state at the beginning was alienation. In fact, some of you right now, you, you might think that you're a follower of Christ, or you might just be curious about, and you don't even know Jesus, and you, you, you know that you do not have a relationship with Christ, which is awesome. We're thankful you're here, and we want to always, this should be a safe place for people to learn about Jesus. This isn't a place for perfect people that have it figured out. This is a place for people who are in process, who want to learn and want to grow and want to hear the word taught. And they don't, they don't want to come with a bait and switch where we have a giant Easter bunny and then, um, and then we slip in a little verse about Jesus on Easter. That's, this is a place where we're going to open the Bible. We're going to teach you the Bible, okay? And so we're going to try to, as authentically as we can, teach you what the word of God says. And so what it says is that all of us, everybody in this room, were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's all of us. What, what does that mean? To say formally alienated, that, that, interestingly enough, that word there is, this doesn't communicate in English uh, as clearly as in the original language, but it means that we were in a perfect state of alienation, which means there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of that. You're stuck. You are stuck in a state of alienation or being estranged or you are a foreigner to the things of God, Okay. You're outside the country, and there's no way you can get in, okay? Somebody evidently has built a big fence there, all right? A little, little joke right there. Uh, and there's no way for you to get into the country. You're a foreigner. You're an alien. There's no way for you can't tunnel under it. You can't get over it. There, you're cut off from. There's a chasm that separates you 
from the, from the kingdom of God, and you are living alien, estranged, foreign, unable to get into the kingdom of God. There's no way you could possibly get in there. That's our state, from alienation. He goes on to, to qualify that even more. In, in verse 13, if we go back to verse 13, it says that we were living in the domain of darkness. In the domain of darkness, that's where we were living, and, and we were, have been transferred in the kingdom of the sons, uh, the sons of God. Kingdom of, transferred the kingdom of his beloved son, thank you. Uh, we were in the domain of darkness, and we have been rescued and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, so Colossians chapter 1 gives us some geography, and the geography is the domain of darkness, kingdom of his beloved son. Kingdom of his beloved son, big walls, big chasm, no way to get in, no possible way to get in there, apart from through the reconciler we're going to see in a second. So we're strange, we're cut off, and we are hostile. It means that we are actively enemies of this kingdom of the Son of God. We are actively against the kingdom of his beloved son. We would do whatever we could to destroy it. We don't want to get into it. We would like to destroy it because I would like to be uh, over my own life and I have my own crown. And who is Jesus to think that he should have any authority or sway over me? I should be able to do whatever I want to do. Why would he tell me what to do? That's just, come on. So we, So interestingly enough, we don't want to get into the kingdom. We're good where we are at because we are estranged. We are formerly alienated, hostile in mind. So mentally, our thinking, this is where we talked about a moment ago, the noatic effect of sin. No, in our thinking, our thinking is messed up. I don't know how much you've had conversations with people who uh, aren't sure what they believe about God or people that even profess to believe about God, but you know there's such a contradiction in their life. And you talk to them about and they are just, sometimes they say things that are absolutely ludicrous and crazy. Crazy. It's like uh, I, I've got a friend who's far from God. Lives in. I grew up down the street from me. Uh, she lives in another country now. Every once in a while, we have little Facebook debates, and um, you know, she. It's it's amazing. She, we'll talk about um, different things like, um, you know, equality in marriage, same sex marriage, whatever. And she's you know her attitude is, well, what does it make a difference to you? I mean, if if why don't we just love everybody? Why don't we love everybody where they're at and just, if, they, if that's how they want, if they want to marry each other, let them marry each other. What does it matter? Just, let's just show love. Let's just love everybody. But she has absolutely no compassion or concern for an unborn baby. She could care less. An unborn baby is a big hunk of flesh and does not have personhood and doesn't have they're not human until they're born. And before they're born, they're just not. In fact, she had a miscarriage and she grieved the miscarriage and she was confounded because she's like, you know what? I'm struggling with this because I've lost this child and I grieve for this child. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that I know that that child, even though I have all these dreams and aspirations and hopes for that child, it's not a child. It's just a big hunk of flesh because it hasn't been born yet. And so she is separated and, and <laughs> this is more prominent in our culture than you even can begin to understand. There is a, um, there's a separation, a dualism, that there is a mechanical bodies, our physical bodies. This, this is physical, mechanical machine. And then there is this personhood inside us. 
And at some point, when you become a thinking, rational person, you get old enough to be thinking and rational, which many people say is about at the age of three. Before that, you're really just a hunk of flesh in a machine. When you get to about the age of three, now you have a, you're starting to have a sense of personhood and you have dreams, aspirations. And at that point, you are a human being and your life should be protected. But before that, it doesn't matter. And then when you get old enough to where you're not really thinking and rational, you really don't matter anymore because, you know what, quite frankly, your machine is still going but the personhood's broken, it's, it's died, and so we pretty much, you're just taking up space and eating resources that we could use for somebody else. Thank you. In fact, if you are born physically, biologically, your chromosomes say you are a boy, girl, whatever, uh, which everybody, your chromosomes do say that, by the way, you can, that's just, your chromosomes are part of the machine. And so if in your person you think you're something different, no problem. Be whatever you think you are. Who is to tell you what you should be? Now, I hear that, and I'm just going, Hmm, that is um, dumb. That's dumb. It's irrational. It's illogical. It makes no sense. It just ma- how do you get there from biology? How can with science we know biologically and we everything and science science is the determinant of all truth in our culture today. And yet we look at a person and we say that life doesn't begin before they're born. That life ends when they don't have a rational capability of really making good decisions, and we could just kill them even though they're alive? Um, how can we say that our gender is determined based upon whatever we feel like should be our gender in the moment? Um, that we, uh, how do you get there? Well, because they're formally, they're, they're alienated from God, hostile in mind, and engaged, therefore, in evil deeds. Need I explain what those are? I mean, we just talked about some of them. So we should have some compassion have some compassion. My, my, my friend is not a jerk. He's not an evil, mean monster. He's deceived. Deceived. Greatly deceived. And uh, honestly, no amount of persuasion on my part ultimately is going to fix her. It's going to take God rescuing her. She needs a reconciler to open her eyes and the truth and the power of the truth. And so I can try to share the truth and I need to be praying a lot because the demons real deep. Uh, Jesus said uh, when disciples came to him, uh, a guy came to him, his son's demon possessed, and he tried to get the disciples to cast out the demon. Jesus was up on a mountain being glorified. Okay, he comes back down, mountain transfiguration, brings the demon-possessed boy, uh, the father does, to Jesus and says, hey, your disciples, I tried to get them to cast out the demon. They couldn't do it. Um, can you help my son? And uh, Jesus says, um, that uh, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. This kind, it, the implication, one pastor, I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, um, the implication was that the demon was too deep, that going, business as usual wasn't going to fix it. Okay? It's going to take uh, God and his sovereign power, and so the disciples had no power to do that. Only God had the power to deliver that young boy, and Jesus, God, did deliver that young boy. And so we've got to understand that God alone can help people. Let me give you a couple other verses to qualify this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 is full of a beautiful but scary picture of this reality. Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their 
thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And it goes on to say that they switched. And instead of worshiping the creator who made everything, they instead decided to worship the creation. And they turned the creation, the stuff made by the creator, into things to worship. And so they chase after the stuff of this world. Now, the reality is all of us battle that. You, your, your heart is a factory of idols. I mean, it makes idol. It pumps out some idols. And we will turn anything into an idol, not just a big hunk of wood carved into some kind of little god. But we will turn our children into idols. We will turn our job into idols. We will turn uh, our spouse or somebody else's spouse or uh, you know whatever dreams, aspirations, whatever. We turn all kinds of things into idols. We have to be careful because we elevate the created when we should be focusing on the creator. And the result is, reality is that we have been futile in our thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. And then in Psalms chapter 2, if you go back to the psalmist, it says this. I'm not going to read the whole, but if you look at verses 1 through 6, there's some really good stuff in there. But it begins by saying, why do the nations rage? In fact, I am going to read it. Uh, <laughs> Psalms chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth, kings of the earth, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast them and their cords from us. And what do you think God's saying about that? Oh, my goodness, they're all against me? Everybody's against me? I mean, I made them. They're against me? What am I going to do? What am I? What am I going to do? Everybody's against. What is he? No, verse four says, he who sits in the heavens. He laughs. <laughs> They're against me. I made them. I, I made, I spoke about, I can be, I can do a couple earthquakes, a tsunami. I can do what I can get rid of them all. They're, they're, and they're against me. They got nuclear bomb. Well, they, like they're going to hurt me. I live in a different dimension. Okay, I, I'm outside of time. They have nothing that can hurt me. Is there, they, they think they have power because I got nuclear bomb. Okay, all right. He sits in heaven. He laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, "As for me, I have set a king on Zion, my holy hill." Beautiful passage of Scripture. For the kings of this earth, the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. A couple thoughts on this and we'll move on. Is, is it the things, is the things that we do, is it the things that we do that have corrupted our minds or is it our hostile minds that have produced wicked actions and behaviors? In other words, is it because we, you know, we do these bad things and so because of that now our minds are messed up? No, it's the opposite. Our minds are messed up and so you see in our actions just the fruit of our futile and broken minds. Our wicked behavior flows from our wicked minds. Our thinking has been corrupted in our fallen state. Now, you might, if you're a thinking person, you might have already challenged my presupposition I just said there. And you just said, you thought, maybe, perhaps, somebody in this room, you thought, uh, but I, there's people I know that don't know God, don't believe in God, and they do good things. There's people that worship other gods, and they do good things. 
How is it that they can do thing, good things apart from God? They're not, everybody's not mean and wicked and whatever. They, you can be good apart from God. Can you? Can you? I, I would say <clears throat> that on our best day, the nice things we do, we do not do it detached from expectation. Okay, our philanthropy, somebody created the word once, and I think it's beautiful, is narcissistic. It's called narcissanthropy. When even when we do good things, we do it to get credit for it. Okay, it's it's like Oprah Winfrey. She builds you know uh, schools for um, you know orphan children in Africa, and she gives cars to everybody in her audience back in the day when she had her show and she was popular. And um, she did all this different stuff. And, you know, why did she do it? She's such a nice, wonderful, awesome, amazing person, isn't she? No. She does it because she gets her significance and her worth and her value, and it elevates her, and she becomes more prideful, thinking how amazing and wonderful and powerful she is, not realizing that the breath that she draws is borrowed from the God who made her. In fact, one time, somebody talked about how God is jealous in that he knows that he created us to know him and love him. And the fact that we don't know and love him, God is jealous of our love because he knows the best thing for you is him. And anything else that you put your affections are, are idols, and it's not good for you. God doesn't, he's not against your happiness. God is all about you being happy. He just knows that if you try to find your happiness in something outside of him, it's not going to go well. It's going to be idolatry. So she said, I heard a preacher say one time that God is, gets jealous, that God's jealous, that, God, that God's all about just his glory. And I just thought, what kind of egomaniac is God that he would be about his glory? Well, she, again, futile in her mind. She doesn't realize that she's elevated herself up to be just the same place as God. She has her own throne and she has justified her position because she does so many wonderful things for other people. And so that has given her worth and dignity and has, she feels like she has probably redeemed herself. She's such a good, wonderful person because she's done all these nice things. How could God ever, if there is a God, send her to hell? She's just so good. Pride, 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 pride. All of us, whenever we do something for somebody else, it's laced with a little bit of pride. But nonetheless, we're created in the image of God. And so we are able to do nice things for people. We can. You can do nice things. Apart from God, you can do nice things. We're created in the image of God. We do things like God does. We show kindness and grace and love to other people. But that doesn't mean that our motives are pure in it. And so even in that, we are engaged in evil deeds. And so that brings us to uh, the next thought. We have been delivered from alienation to reconciliation. To reconciliation. What, what does that mean? It says in verse 22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So God has reconciled. It means that we were enemies of God. And two things happened. Jesus, in his power and his lordship, has overcome. He's overcome us, number one. And number two, he has restored us who were enemies of God into friendship. So he has, he has paid for the penalty of our sins because we owe God. I mean, if we're going to be friends with God again, we really got to pay him back for what we've done. Well, you don't have enough righteousness in your account to be able to pay God back. Good news. Jesus does. and He has lent it to you. And so now he has reconciled you to the Father by paying the debt you owe. 
And he has run after you and he has conquered your heart by, uh, therefore, reconciling, in his lordship, reconciling you to God through his death on the cross. So the fullness of God, get this, the fullness of God, the fullness of God in the person of Christ rescued you and reconciled you to himself. Again, I, the, I didn't read that this morning, but a couple verses before this, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, God is the fullness of God. It was his pleasure to dwell in Jesus, the fullness of God, pleasure to dwell in the person of Jesus, who is God and to reconcile all things to himself. And so God, through the cross, has reconciled us to himself. So so the reality, we are estranged, and we are hostile to God. We're enemies of God. We don't want God, and God has fixed it so we could be friends with him again. Jesus has pursued us. He didn't judge us like we would have judged anybody else who has sinned against us and are enemies, but he has rescued us. And that brings us to the last thought. And that is... uh, We have been delivered from alienation through or to reconciliation, persevering until glorification. This is an important couple thoughts for us to end with. Persevering until glorification. In order, verse 22, second part of verse 22, reconcile us through his body, through the death, in order to present you. Present you to who and how? Present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is amazing. You and I, hostile enemies outside of the domain of God, can't get over the fence, can't get in. There's no way for us to conquer and to get in. We can't do it. Jesus has come out of, out of the kingdom of God and pursued us. He's come after us and has conquered us in the domain of darkness and has brought us and transported us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has reconciled you. Your friend, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to hide in the corners of the kingdom of his beloved son. You don't have to just kind of stay in the darkness because if the father sees, he's going to be like, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be in here, (laughs) right? You don't have to hide from him. And he has reconciled your friends with the king of the kingdom. Amazing. And he's not done with you. Not only has he reconciled you, but you're going to persevere. You're going to hang in there if you're in the kingdom until one day you're going to be glorified. What what does that mean? You're going to be made holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, you might have been a Christian for six months, six years, 60 years. doesn't matter. You are not holy and blameless yet. You will be, but you're not yet. You're hopefully more holy and blameless in your actions than you used to be because we're growing becoming more like Jesus, but it's a process. It's a process called sanctification. You're becoming more like Jesus each day. You're in the Word, you're praying, you come to church, you meet with other believers, you're growing, but you haven't arrived. You are in process, but that process is happening, and it's going to continue. One day, it's going to be culminated. It's going to finish, and at that point, you will be holy and blameless and beyond reproach, like an offering. Like last week, we celebrated Easter and Easter is built upon Passover. And Passover, they would take a little lamb, perfect little lamb. Make sure 
there's no scratches or imperfections or problems with the little lamb. It's perfect, spotless, without any flaw. Holy and blameless. And here's what was happening in that. This is where I want you to grab this picture in your mind. What's happening is the priest goes and he places his hands on, or the the worshiper would place their hands on the little lamb, and they would confess their sins upon the lamb. God, I'm really messed up. I'm bad. I'm this. I'm that. I'm I'm an alien, hostile in my mind and my actions, and I do evil things, and I'm so bad. And they're transferring, transferring symbolically their sins onto this perfect, beautiful, spotless, unblemished, innocent little lamb. And that little lamb is taken and is slaughtered. It is killed on their behalf. Its blood is poured out on their behalf. And it has taken the wrath of God and poured out on that little animal on, on, in place of their sin. And its purity and its holiness and its spotlessness has been transferred to the worshiper, symbolically. That's what Passover pictured. That's what the Day of Atonement pictured in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus died on the cross, understand this, when you come to a point of repentance, you, you come to an end of it, and you come to the reality that I am an alien apart from God, and I need Jesus' grace, I need His help. You confess your need for Christ. You are transferring all of your junk onto Jesus, and you're getting all of His perfection onto you. Judicially, you're not going to be punished for your sin. But you still have issues, right? There's still stuff in our flesh that pops up from time to time. We don't act the way we're supposed to always. We mess up. We grow and we're growing. We're in process. One day you will be completely, God will finish the process and you will be completely delivered from the presence of sin, not just the power of sin. And His fleshly body through His death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and this is where the persevering comes in until glorification. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. So if I could just take the last couple moments and if I could qualify that for you, because that's a scary verse. If indeed you make it. That's basically what it sounds like. Doesn't it sound like that? I mean, if you can do, I mean, you know, not everybody can run that distance. Not everybody can get there. Not everybody. I mean, you know, Jesus has died, reconciled, done all these things. If you're good enough to make it into the rest of the way. Jesus saved you. You got to get the rest away on your own. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. There's too much scripture that would just blow that up. There's no possible way. You're not saved by your own ability. You didn't save yourself by your own wisdom. You can't maintain your salvation by your own wisdom. You're saved by grace through faith. Unmerited, undeserved salvation provided for you. And you trust in that. And in the same way, you grow by grace through faith. If you'd like to write down Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, read that later. It will help you understand that more. I don't have time to read that for you. But let me give you a couple other cross-references and warn you with these things. This is important. It says that, uh, well, two realities. Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or do you not know, do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. There's going to be a judgment seat where believers and unbelievers will stand before God, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So before the foundation of the the world, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless, that in the future there will be a time where we will be holy and blameless. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, again it says that 
the church would be presented holy and without blemish. Actually, in the context of marriage as a picture of that in Ephesians chapter 5. But how do we continue in the faith? What does that look like? Well, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. This is the question we're answering. Let me read this for you. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? If you were to examine and test yourself this morning, do you, do you fail the test or do you meet the test? Because there's going to be a future judgment. You're standing before God and, and it's too late at that point to uh, retest, okay? The grade is given at that point. That's not the point where, uh, you know, you can, get, you can do anything to change, okay? You're, you're right now, you have an opportunity to examine yourself. This morning, you have an opportunity to examine yourself and to test yourself, to make sure that you're in the faith. And so the Bible challenges us, begs us, behooves us, encourages us, exhorts us to make sure that we test ourselves. Do not make the false assumption that you're a Christian because you made some decision at some point in the past in some emotional camp deal. You were at this camp and then the music going and this guy was preaching on hell and you were really scared. And so he was just hammering you. And then you thought, man, I'm going to I'm going to throw my log in the fire of represent my sin. and I'm going to trust in Jesus. And you made some emotional decision. And so you're a Christian now. Are you? I'm not saying you're not, but I'm not saying you are just because you had an emotional decision. Examine. It's worth checking. It's worth kicking the tires. It's worth opening the hood, right? Make sure. Let me give you one more verse. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that same verse, a little bit before that says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So don't be mistaken. It's not saying you need to make sure you do these things so you can get in. No, he's saying, yeah, I've given you everything. Everything's there. Just don't assume you have it if you don't have it. And so if I could clarify my, my intent here. I'm not trying to make anybody doubt anything. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. I'm not trying to do that. But I would much rather you doubt your salvation right now and start to kick the tires in your faith and open the hood and make sure that you're a Christian, not just because you determined in your mind that I think Jesus is cool, so I'm going I'm to jump in that tribe for a while. I'm going to try that out. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You check that box. Just because you check the box doesn't mean you're a Christian. Examine your faith. I would rather you doubt your salvation and discover, no, I really am a believer, or I'm really not a believer, while you have a chance to adjust, <laughs> rather than you have the false assumption based upon some emotional or whatever decision you made in the past, or because your grandmother's such a great Christian lady, or whatever, and you're looking back in the past, you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm surely I'm a Christian. I, I would rather you doubt and figure it out and make sure and confirm it than I would that you have the false assumption you are, and then find out one day that you aren't. Because Jesus said, many will come in that day and will say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church and go to Sunday school and go to class and go to life group and do this and do Pinecrest and do all these things? And he'll say, mm, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew How could he say that? It, the reality is there's people that come to church that think they're believers, that they are not believers. Their life is indistinguishable from the uh, other people in the world. There's no 
power in their life. There's no presence of Jesus in their life. There's no conviction of sin in their, li- in their life. There's not a desire to be around the people of God in their life. There's not a hunger for the word of God in their life. And Romans says, their spirit is not, God's spirit is not bearing witness with their spirit that they are children of God. If you don't know if you're believing, just ask God to reveal it. God, am I a follower of Christ? And if you're not, understand that the reconciler has left the camp and has come after you. He has gone outside of the walls and he is pursuing you and he is knocking at the door of your heart. He is pursuing you right now. You wouldn't be here right now if he did not long to have you rescued and in the kingdom of his beloved son and escape the domain of darkness. How do we continue in the faith? Two simple things he tells us. One positive, one negative. We're done. Two simple things. Be firmly established. It says, if indeed you continue the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Firmly established and steadfast. Here's what's being pictured there. We are to lay a foundation for the building. Okay, firm and immovable. Colossians, uh, in, in the Colossian, Colossae area of the city, a lot of times they had earthquakes and one of the things that happens with earthquakes is it breaks foundations and houses start to crack and fall apart. And so they understood what he's talking about. He's giving them a building term to make sure, make sure that the foundation that you're building on is solid. Make sure it's solid and that it is immovable. And so the, the positive challenge for you to make sure to examine your faith and to make sure um, that you're going to persevere that is make sure that you are growing in relationship with Christ. And the best way to do that is to spend time in the Word. Nothing reveals. Nothing reveals your relationship with Christ like being in the Word. And read it, spend time in it, until you begin to see God speaking to you about it. There was a a guy that was given a Bible. I think it was in another country. I just heard the story recently. And one of the things about Bibles, I don't know if you know this, but but Bibles have some of the best paper for cigarettes. Or other things, I guess you could smoke. Um, but you sprinkle it in there and you roll it up and it's just the, it's just the perfect paper for that. And so this guy uh, offered this man who was not a follower of Christ a Bible and he said, um, he said uh, man, that's awesome. Can I, can I, would you be offended if I smoked the paper? He says, okay, I'll make a deal with you. You can have it and you could smoke it, but you have to read the page before you smoke it. Fair deal. He's like, okay, that's cool. Smoked his way through Matthew. Smoked his way through Luke. Smoked his way through Mark. And he got to John chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3. You must be born again. And he couldn't smoke anymore. And the guy surrendered his life to Christ. The light bulbs went off. Suddenly, Jesus, the reconciler, had come and had just opened his heart up. And he saw his state. He saw where he was. And suddenly, he was alive. And he didn't have to pray a prayer. He didn't have to walk an aisle. He didn't have to check a box. He didn't have to throw a log in the campfire. He didn't have to do anything. At that moment, it's just like, wow, boom, I'm not, I need to be born again. I need to sur- and he surrendered his life to Christ, and he was saved. I mean, that's what you need to do, okay? If you're not sure, get in the book. I don't care if you tear a page out. I Do whatever. We'll get you another Bible. Tear out each page after you read it if you have it. I don't care what. You just smoke your way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But, but just read the Bible. At least the Bible was used. A lot of Christians have Bibles and don't even do anything with it. 
smoke it if you have to, but read it first, okay? But I just, I would just, at least it's getting in them somehow, you know? I mean, that is. But he was firmly established because he spent time in the Word. And as he's reading this, God opens his eyes and, and he was solid in his foundation. So the positive thing is that if we're going to continue the faith, we need to be firmly established, rooted, grounded in the Word of God. The second thing is a negative. And this is beautiful. And I don't have time to explain this in the depth that I'd like to. Come back next week. We'll get into this more. But here's the reality. Do not move away from the hope of the gospel. Here's, that's the negative. So the positive, be firmly rooted, grounded. The negative, don't move. Don't move off of the gospel. Don't move to the latest book. Don't move to the latest trend. Don't move to the latest thing that you perceive to be better than the thing. Okay, there's nothing that's better. There's nothing that's newer. There's no new idea that's going to be superior to the gospel, the reconciler, the rescuer, creator God coming to redeem us and reconcile. There's nothing better than that story. No better story. No better story than God leaving the impenetrable kingdom of God and coming out after us into the domain of darkness to rescue us in danger, dying on our behalf in the midst of his rescue mission to to set us free from the domain of darkness and bring us back into the kingdom of God. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, was made a minister. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel. There's no other hope. And if you're listening to it and you're, you're, you're going, well, what is the hope of the God? What does that mean? I, I, would, I would be honored. I would beg you for the privilege that I could begin the journey. And it's not one conversation or a sentence or some powerful outline I can give. But that if you're questioning these things, please do not turn inward and trust your brain to figure it out. Please reach out to me, to somebody that can come beside you. We can read the word together until you can smoke your way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so you can come to an awareness of the gospel. Because I'm telling you, once you get the glimpse of it, and sometimes there's a little hiking that has to happen before you can get to where you see it, but once you get to it and you see it for what it is, there's nothing better. There's no other hope. There's nothing that compares to the hope of the gospel. So don't move away from the gospel. The Colossians were moving away from the gospel, and Paul writes this letter to them to tell them, stop trying to move away from the gospel. Don't do that. If you do that, you're not persevering towards glorification, which means you're not really a believer. If you move away from it, you never saw it. Because if you've tasted of it, if you've eaten of it, you'll never thirst again, and you'll never want to eat anything else. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what our brains cannot do, and that you would awaken in us who are dead apart from you a hunger, a passion, a desire to know your word, to know your truth. Father, that you would awaken in us a desire to run hard after you, to run hard after your truth, to, run, to, to just want to know the gospel and understand it, to perceive it, that you would change and transform us, God. We acknowledge as a body that we are alienated and foreign to you apart from Jesus' rescue mission. Thank you for reconciling us. Thank you for the confession of of many in this room that, God, we have been reconciled to you. And for anybody that's waffling on the fence of, I don't know. I don't know if I have been. God, I pray that they would not, they would not risk false security and false hope, but that they would not rest until they have nailed down their foundation and that it would be firm and that they would not move on from the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.